0: we left off with Jesus having bestowed an identity on the church, that we are his witnesses. Uh, That's what he says in chapter one, you will be my witnesses. And so there's this identity and the church has now been given power. The Spirit came and we watched that story unfold last week with the, the Holy Spirit indwelling and empowering the people of God to bear witness to Jesus. And part of that relationship of identity and power is a new standing with God. Remember, Peter proclaimed forgiveness of sins, that the biggest barriers in the relationship with God are dealt with and what Jesus has done. And and now the church is also now given this new community, that, the, that there is this community that learns and loves and gives and shares and prays and bears witness and this is this community that's empowered by the spirit. And so now we're going to turn the corner into chapter 3 and see what the church is like as it faces out, right? So last week we saw the church interacting amongst the church. There's this mutual relationship where we pull our resources together and we share and we learn together. But now we're going to see the church turn outward, right? So there's this church lives on a mission. And so this morning, I want to take a look at what this, this looks like as the church moves out into a world that needs and longs for restoration, to be restored. So uh, let's take a look at Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Um, I see, Nathan, you want to throw verse 1 up there? Thank you. All right, so now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, he's crippled, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those who are entering the temple. An alm is a handout, okay? Uh, And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asks to receive alms. So this guy is born lame, can't walk, whole life, it reminds us actually of a story earlier in Luke's first volume, where one of the first miracles we see Jesus perform in the gospel of Luke is where he heals a man who's paralyzed from birth. And uh, one of the things we're going to see as the book of Acts unfolds is that Luke, the author of Acts, keeps casting his characters in the role of Jesus. It's actually really interesting we see Peter now cast in the role of a Jesus-like person. Right? That's the point. You're going to be my witnesses. I'm going to give power, so you'll bear witness to me. And so now Peter's playing the role of Jesus. He Remember we talked in uh, chapter one about how the mantle of Jesus' ministry goes to the church. And so uh, Peter is interacting in this way, it's going to depict Jesus, and narratives often depict things. They right? they don't just tell you things; they show you things. And it's uh, it was very normal in this day for people to just sit outside the place where God was worshipped and wait for alms. Right, giving alms was actually a, presuppos- a presupposition of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he says. Uh, not to let your right hand know what your left hand's doing, he's assuming people are actually giving to the poor. Like, so just when you do it, don't do it in a way that's boastful, right? Like, that's what he's getting at. And so this concern for the poor was assumed, and this paralyzed man is looking for alms. He just wants a handout, like just enough to relieve a little bit of his pain for today, but he's not necessarily expecting anything that's going to change his life. And one of the things I want to say in this story is we actually see humanity being depicted uh, by this man that was born paralyzed. If you go back to Luke chapter 5, the first paralytic story, you actually have Jesus solving his problem in a way that wouldn't be expected. All his friends lower him down through a roof. I don't know if you remember this story, and he gets there and he would expect that Jesus would heal him. But instead, what does Jesus say? What's the problem that Jesus perceives and then fixes? Your sins are forgiven. Like, uh, wait, what? Like, that, that wasn't what I expected. You see, Jesus actually looks in at the situation, and he sees where he's most helpless. Where he's most helpless actually is his own relationship with God and his own relationship to sin. He needs forgiveness. And so that's his biggest problem. And the miracle of healing is just a signpost that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And so there's always this temptation for us when we look at stories of re- restoration in the Bible to think of restoration in strictly material terms. Like a really restored life is when we have lots of stuff and feel really comfortable, right? And the Bible's showing us that that's actually not the full story of what it means to be a restored human, that there's something way deeper, way more significant. The key issue has to do with our relational Isolation and stuckness, and so one of the things that our culture says is essentially like if you have more stuff you 'll be happy and the story that our culture tells about humanity is as if we 're lost children looking for toys, and actually the bible's saying you 're a lost child looking for a family it 's relational uh issues that cause us the deepest pain, and so Uh, This picture of a a restored person perceives a deeper malady than just not being able to walk. It actually uses this guy as a picture of humanity, that, that humanity is seen like him as a beggar. We're paralyzed by the reality of sin in our life. And so this reality for sin is that it always paralyzes us. It keeps us stuck. And the strategy for coping with our paralysis spiritually, at least in our culture just like this guy, is to go out looking for an alm. Like if I could have a little bit of relief from my loneliness. If you could just throw me a little bit of relief from my you fill in the blank, right? The places that feel paralyzed to you, humanity acts like this bigger. We look for an alm. And I think the picture that Luke is showing us in Acts chapter 3 is that the reality is humanity was made to walk with God, not live on alms. You see this throughout the Bible in the book of Ecclesiastes, the the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, where the man with the most stuff in the end, Solomon, the teacher of wisdom, says, I had it all, I have it all, and I got to tell you, it's all basically just vanity. It's smoke. It's not it's not actually leading to happiness and so this guy looks to the apostles and hopes that he's going to get something from them what he doesn't expect is that he's going to end up with something from jesus and how often is that true we come into jesus just or come into church just expecting something horizontal like maybe i'll develop community and that's that's a good aim we think that's a good aim we pursue it as an end here But oftentimes we miss that the church is the people of God. We want to gather together and we hope to receive something from Jesus that heaven would break in in our midst. And this is what he doesn't expect at all. And so look at verse... uh, Well, let me throw this quote up real quick. I ran across this this week and loved it. The business of the church is to deal with the real problem of men and women, not to give alms, but to offer a cure for the paralysis And this is what we're getting at in this story. Verse 4, Peter directed his gaze uh, at him, as did John, and he said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Like, you can just imagine Peter and John, they've walked with Jesus, they've seen the stuff that Jesus did, and now they're doing the stuff that Jesus did. You've got to imagine the excitement at this point, and they're bearing witness. He says, well, look at us, we're nothing special. Uh, and in fact, no, I, I noticed this, that the man had to adjust his gaze to them. In other words, people are walking by and he's looking down, and he's just asking, help me out, give me a handout. And they're talking to him, and he actually has to adjust his gaze You know something's happened in your life where you have shame, right, when you don't want to look at other people in the eye, right? This guy, in other words, he's given up hope, right, and he's living in shame. And he actually has to adjust his gaze to interact with another human. And part of the paralysis that sin causes in our life is it will isolate us from community and it will draw us downward and inward, and so one of the things that Peter says then is, I actually don't have anything to give you in terms of cash, but what I do have, I do give. Now, let me just say, this is not an apologetic to like, neglect the poor. Okay? <laughs> like, this is not about, uh, this is, isn't a paradigm for rejecting generosity. Like, we don't have, well, Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold, and so we don't have to give anything. I think actually what we saw in chapter four was that the community was giving generously, or sorry, chapter two, the community was giving generously. There was, In fact, there was no want or need within the community because the people had pulled their resources together and were giving generously. And this is why we do this. We pull our resources together and we give generously to move the work of the kingdom forward, right? And so in this case, he's saying all of the, things that we share in common back in chapter 2, that's actually not the good news. It's a result of the good news in our life, but that's not the main thing we're offering. We're not offering a way to get a hookup. We're offering reconciliation. We're offering restoration. That's the good news. And so Peter looks at that context of the man and goes, handouts aren't going to save you. You actually need the power of God to come into your life. You don't need temporary relief. You need change And so that's what Peter offers, and he says, in the name of Jesus or on the authority of Jesus or on behalf of Jesus, rise and walk. This is good news. This is what the gospel summons all of us to do, that that there is the reality that in Jesus I can rise and walk, that on my own, I'm a slave to my own self-centeredness, and I'm stuck and paralyzed in it. But the gospel breaks through that and he says, rise and walk, rise from your shame and walk in my honor, rise from your fear and walk in my power, rise from your guilt and walk in my righteousness. This is the good news. And so this morning, as we sit with this idea that the gospel is depicted as restoration, I want to just ask the question, are there places in your life where you're feeling paralyzed today? Places where there's a paralysis in your walk with God where rather than being able to look others in the eye, you're wanting to hide. I want to say to you today that part of what God is up to here and in your life is to call you to rise and walk, to walk with God. And by the way, walking, last time I checked, involves putting one foot in front of the other. It's a a one-step-at-a-time habit. It's not a be at the end now. It's a put a foot in front of the other now in trust I'm walking with God, right? And so this is the invitation of the gospel to rise. We can be raised because he's been risen, and I have union with him, and that's what my baptism pronounces, and I can walk in him because I have the spirit in my life. He actually animates my life and moves my life. Look at verse 7. Uh, He took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them. Before he was on the outside of the temple, he didn't have fellowship with God, right? In that sense, he was alienated from the life of the worshiping community. Now he's jumping up and praising in the temple. He's walking and leaping, and he's praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. Right? Uh, you used to just look for handouts. So now you have joy, right? And and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So on one hand, I want to say to you, this is a picture of the restoration offered to you in Jesus. On the other hand, this is a picture of the church facing outward that we actually share in a ministry of restoration. And we don't get to participate unless we stop and see people, unless we listen and hear people. Right? There's something about the, the, the agenda that Peter and John had of getting to the temple that they were willing to drop in order to see God's agenda unfold. That's beautiful. And this is, this is the work of the church. This is the call of the church to actually be a people who reach out right? and simply stop and listen, who make priority for the other. It's called hospitality, actually. So if you're looking at the story and you're going, "That's great," but where's the power for that? Where's the power for that in my own life? Look at, look at verse 11. While he, that is this guy who had been born lame, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, so this place in the temple. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people and he said, "Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as if by our own power or piety?" We have made him walk. Like, what? why do you think that this is like something we did? This isn't magic. We're not special. What's he say? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, he's taking it right back to their roots as the Jewish people and saying, actually, this is your God, and he's acted in Jesus, right? That God, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And so you killed the author of life. Like, how's that for a sermon? Like, remember when you killed the author of life? Big mistake. Huge. I just feel like anyway. this is Peter, not Julie Roberts. So verse 15. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. Like, we've seen this. We've watched it unfold. And in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and you know. And the faith that is through Jesus uh, has given this man the perfect health that you see in the presence of all of you, right? And so what's going on here is Peter's saying two things. He's saying what the, where the power doesn't come from and where the power does come from. He says, first of all, the power doesn't come from us let me tell you, this is a huge relief. If you are working alongside somebody for the sake of their restoration, I got to tell you that the pressure's off. This is good news. The power doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from good, your good leader or whatever. It comes through from Jesus. Right? If you're working to see somebody restored, you don't get to take credit for it when it does happen, and you don't get to take the blame when it doesn't happen, right? Because it's, the restoration is something that God offers, it comes from Jesus or through his name, by his authority. And so one of the things that we see is that the, the power is Christ's, but at the same time the hand was Peter's. The power was Christ, but the hand was Peter. So it comes from Jesus, not from Peter, but it comes through Peter. Like Jesus actually ordains things so that his power flows through his people, And this is what happens when the church is who the church is always meant to be. This is why we're doing a study in the book of Acts. We're going back and we're saying, what are our roots? Who have we always been? So that we can be true to who we've always been today in this moment. And so when we look at our own life, right? Whose hand was it that actually brought the transforming power of Christ into your life? I bet if you're like most of us, there was a person there was a community, there were people who touched your life in a significant way, right? And now, who are the people around you that God wants to use his power to touch through you? This is the beautiful thing about the kingdom of God, we all get to play. We all get to play. No, like, there's no sideline here. Every one of us is actually called to bear witness, that right? the power of Christ comes through, not from us, but through us, so you look at who's around me. Here's the third point. So that's the, the, we've seen that there's a picture of restoration and the summons to rise and walk. And the power of restoration comes from Jesus, but it flows through his people as we're available, as we just yield our lives to the work of Jesus. And now there's also a promise that comes with restoration. What is it that we actually are promised and what is it that we offer as the church? Look at verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. I love this, by the way. Like, this, this promise of restoration isn't for those who are just readily accepting it, right? It's equally for those who are vehemently rejecting it in ignorance. So our ignorance isn't actually uh, something that God looks at and goes, well, I'll stop pursuing you. He actually keeps pursuing people who reject him. To a point, right? And he says, I know you acted in ignorance as also your rulers, but God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, and he thus, he, he thus fulfilled like all those promises. What, pe- what Peter's saying is, by the way, in the ancient world, if there's something new, it's immediately viewed with skepticism. Any new development is like, I don't know. Like an iPhone 10 is far less credible than the Kyocera thing that had like that game that, where you like just hit the ball back and forth, and that was the only game you had. Remember those? That would be way more valid, right? We live in the opposite, right? The newest thing is always the most valid, the most credible, the most interesting. In the ancient world, if you couldn't show what you were doing was tied to something older, you were viewed with immediate skepticism. So Peter is saying, look, this thing that happened in Jesus is as ancient as it gets. This is what God's always been up to. The prophets have always been saying this would happen. It just now finally happened, but it's always been the plan. And so he's trying to show the credibility that Jesus ought to be given within his Old Testament, ancient world context. And then he says this, here are the promises. If you repent, therefore, and turn back, your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom uh, heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things, uh, restoring, I'm sorry, whom heaven must receive until the restoring of of all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Sorry, I'm having a brain meltdown. Verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the end of Deuteronomy. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to those who came after him also proclaim these days, You're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, go back all the way in the story, when he said, In your offspring to Abraham shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the day until the next day, for it was already evening. But many, it says, of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. All right, so we'll stop there in terms of the text that we're getting through today, but I want to say this. There are these three things that Peter points out as part of what restoration looks like. Three things. I'll work through them quickly. First of all, after he grounds his whole argument back in the Old Testament, the scriptures and all that they've always pointed to, he says, here's what God's up to in Jesus. Here's what restoration looks like. First of all, he restores you relationally. He restores you relationally, or uh, he offers a restored relationship. And that is when we say, by the grace of God, when God's love melts our hearts, we say, I don't actually want to do life on my own without God, right? He turns us, and we turn from a life apart from God to a life where he actually calls the shots, and he actually defines me and orients my life. and he restores me. Think about this, though, too. Anytime you have a restored relationship, and if it's a marriage relationship or a friendship, what restores it? Is it time? Do you just let things go and that is, you finally are just better? Like I, I, that was like that was middle school male friendships for me. right? We would get mad at each other, and then we'd pretend like nothing happened about three days later. Not healthy right? What what works in a relationship is when the offended party forgives the offense. That's how a relationship gets restored. The fact that it needs to be restored means that it was broken. And so whoever did the breaking, right, has to own it. And whoever got the breaking has to forgive it. Otherwise, it's not restored. And so in our relationship with God, Peter is saying What's offered to you is a restored relationship where the offended party, God, says, I forgive you, and I'm not going to treat you like you're an offender. I'm actually going to treat you like you're my child right, and like you're my friend. And so what I want to say to you is the promise of forgiveness, the promise of restored relationship deals with the anxiety about what God thinks of you. right? If you're here today and you actually have any question mark, about what God actually thinks about you and how he feels towards you, what I want to say to you is look at the promise of restored relationship. The full forgiveness of sins is part of this package where he says, actually, I'm going to blot out, right, erase the record of your wrongdoing. And so if we have anxiety over God's opinion, what I want to say is the gospel flips that on, our, on its head, and instead you have assurance of God's costly acceptance of you. And that actually motivates everything else in your life. The second thing that comes with restoration is a restored outlook or a restored way of seeing your world and experiencing your world. He says in verse 20 that we should expect times of refreshing coming from the presence of the Lord. We were at somebody's home the other night for dinner, and one of the things that occurred to me was they listed a fair amount of burdens in their life like there's financial burdens and there's physical like medical burdens and, and there's relational burdens but they were joyful all the way through they were generous and hospitable and everything about their life seemed to be defined by something completely other than their circumstance and what i want to say is they were not defined by the alms they were looking for the alms of a of a circumstantial change they were very much defined by the presence of God in their life. And so, what we see in, in the scriptures is we see this picture of God coming and bringing His presence. He says, I, I'm not going to promise what the circumstances are going to be, but I'm going to promise my presence. And when we have His presence, we can be refreshed. And so, the, this couple we were with, while there were plenty of circumstances to create bitterness, they kept choosing joy because they were refreshed by the presence of God. And this is what God does. He actually brings us into his own relationship of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that we can have his joy, his refreshment that always exists in him. And so when you have a restored relationship, your outlook is transformed because you have his presence. And then finally, we see a restored direction or restored hope. One of the things that we all know from trying to get from point A to point B is that your destination determines your direction, right? Like wherever you want to get determines which way you're headed. And one of the things that I think is easy for us to believe in our very materialistic culture is that there is no destination. It's all just cause and effect, and there is no purpose to anything else. And the Christian story is actually the opposite. Yes, there's cause and effect, but there's a purpose. There's a design and it's all headed somewhere. There is a destination. And this is what he says in f- f- chapter 3 verse 21 when he says uh, that he may send the Messiah, the Christ who's appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. In other words, there's a time when God restores not just individuals, but everything that cancer ends, that injustice ends, that every reason for sorrow ends because he restores everything. And what I want to say is this protects us from a self-centered view of restoration. It's really easy to just get on the train of God loves me and wants my life to be cleaned up and I focus on my life but what I, this, this story is showing us that there is a bigger picture, that God has a direction for all of human history, and he's leading it that way. And so that means everything we do either works towards that end or actually kind of works against it. And so if you have this direction that God's restoring everything and you have this as the outlook on your life that he's restoring everything, it trivializes all the things in your life that don't lead to that ultimate destination, doesn't it? Like, whatever if I don't have this TV or if I don't get to live in this place. Because that's not all about where God's taking this thing. But the work that we do that is a signpost or a foretaste of this ultimate destination of all things restored, the love that you share around your table, the way you serve the poor, the way that you offer hospitality, these kinds of things last. And God says, actually, they're not done in vain. They will last because God's going to ultimately make a new world out of all of it. And so we have this this hope of a new direction, and it changes your life. If you have a restored relationship, and if you actually have a restored outlook and a restored direction for everything that you do, it does change you. And so uh, this is what we proclaim to the world. We don't just experience it, we also proclaim it. And we actually live as a witness that these things are true. These things are true, and we try to practice it. And so one of the ways that we practice this reality of restored relationship and outlook and all of this is to come to the tables, that every week we gather and we rehearse a story, we practice the story over and over and over so that the practice of the story seeps into our bones and we actually live like it's true, that we're accepted by a God who has come near to restore a relationship, that he comes to offer his presence at the table and in your life by his spirit, and that he's taking all things eventually towards this meal. That's where we're going. It's a, it's a way to rehearse the reality that every week we say, actually fullness is only found at his table, and that fullness is afforded not by my effort or my performance, but what he's done. And so what I would want to do is invite the band to come up this morning and And lead us in response um, to this reality of God's restoration where he summons us to rise and walk and he says, I'm going to actually feed you and nourish you along the way at my table where we remember the body of Christ given for us and the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins. And as we do, I want to invite you to just respond this morning. The tables are open. You can respond in trust and faith and say, God, I want you to be restoring these places in my life that are paralyzed. God, I want you to use me in other people's life to pronounce and provide an experience of what it means to be restored so that others would know you and your restoration. We have folks in the back who are available to pray for you too. If there's just a place in your life you'd just like to be Prayed for. Be prayed for. Be loved in that way today. Let me pray.